You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is Lecture 11 of the Lecture Cycle by Rudolf Steiner, entitled, According to Matthew, The Gospel of Christ's Humanity. After the temptation, which was an example of a particular type of initiation, Christ transmitted ancient teachings to his disciples in a completely new form. Nevertheless, as we discussed yesterday, accounts of his healing activities suggest that his healing power was at least as important for humankind as his teachings. Then we drew on years of spiritual scientific study as we moved on to Matthew's account of the unique and living living instruction that occurred through the transfer of forces from Christ Jesus to the souls of his disciples. When we described the nature of this instruction, we were attempting as best we could to express an exalted mystery in human words. The Christ served as a focal point, as it were, for macrocosmic forces that flowed into earthly circumstances and into the disciples' souls. Instructive and enlivening forces from the cosmos itself, which normally flow into us only when we are asleep and unconscious, flowed to the disciples through the being of the Christ Jesus. Of course, the details of those forces which illumine cosmic existence can be characterized only by studying specific cosmic constellations. Today we will consider this mystery as Matthew describes it. First, however, we must understand how the disciples increased in wisdom with regard to earthly conditions by receiving the forces radiating from Christ Jesus. They experienced various types of development within themselves, in their lives, and in their living wisdom. Matthew includes a unique description of how one of the apostles developed, but we cannot understand its special significance unless we consider it in a very broad context. We must first understand that individuals progress through successive incarnations as all of humankind evolves. During post-Atlantean times, for example, we have all incarnated repeatedly, beginning with the first or Indian cultural period. We then moved through the Persian, Egypto-Chaldean, and Greco-Roman periods. Those incarnations had a purpose. They constitute the great school of life. We learn from the changing circumstances that we encounter in successive incarnations, gradually growing in wisdom as we pass through various epochs of human evolution. What is involved in that growth? As we know from the introductory tenets of Spiritual science, the human constitution has several different members. We call them the physical, etheric, and astral bodies, and the sentient soul, which is linked to the astral body, the mind soul, and the consciousness soul. And we are evolving toward even higher members, the spirit self, life spirit, and spirit body. Each of the post-Atlantean cultural epochs enhanced the development of one of these members of the human constitution. During the first epoch, for example, in the culture of ancient India, we received forces that enhanced the etheric body. 
Parenthesis, the physical body had already been advanced through contributions at the end of the Atlantean period. Parenthesis. So the gifts we have received in post-Atlantean times began in ancient India with the etheric body. During the ancient Persian period, forces were imprinted on the astral or sentient body, and the Egypto-Chaldean period left its impression on the sentient soul. During the fourth or Greco-Roman cultural period, we were imbued with the forces of mind soul. Now we live in a period in which we are gradually receiving forces connected with the consciousness soul, though this process is not very far along. Human nature will be imbued with the forces of the spirit self during the sixth post-Atlantean period and with the forces of the life spirit during the seventh. And in the very distant future, the spirit body, or Atma, will be imprinted on normal human nature. Now let's consider the evolution of individuals from the perspective of the holy mysteries. The disciples gradually acquired this perspective through the enlivening and instructive forces that flowed from the Christ. Consider an individual human being, whether modern or one who lived at the time of Christ Jesus. We must understand that this person has inherent potential, just as a plant with only green leaves has the potential for flowers and fruit. When we see a green leafy plant, we know that flowers and fruit are bound to appear during its normal development. We can be equally certain that in our age the consciousness soul will emerge in human individuals who embodied only the sentient and mind souls at the time of Christ Jesus, and that ultimately we will be able to receive the uppermost trinity of the human constitution as a gift of divine spirit. The consciousness soul begins this process by opening itself to spirit self. Thus, individual development continues on the basis of existing soul faculties. Just as a plant at first has only green leaves and eventually produces flowers and fruit, so too we will produce the quote-unquote flower of human nature from the sentient mind and consciousness souls and then hold it up to receive the divine element or spirit self, which will allow us to take the next step toward the pinnacle of human evolution. At the time of Christ Jesus, normal individual development had reached the level of the mind-soul, which is not capable of receiving the spirit self. Even then, however, it was known that such individuals would, quote, give birth, unquote, to the consciousness-soul, which could then receive the spirit self. The name given in the mysteries to the flower of human nature that grew from an individual's entire being was also the name that Christ used when he described it to his disciples. Translated into our language, this name means, quote, son of man, unquote. The Greek expression, huios tu anthropou, unlike our word son, is not restricted to meaning the son of a father. It also means a being's offspring or further development, like the flower that emerges through growth of a plant that formerly bore only leaves. At the time of the Christ, when average people had not yet developed the consciousness so, the flower of their being, or huios to anthropu. It was nonetheless known that there are always those who are ahead of their time and cultivate the knowledge and soul activity of a later epoch. In the fourth cultural epoch, normal evolution had progressed only to the stage of the mind-soul. At that time, certain leaders of humanity must have appeared the same as their contemporaries, 
yet inwardly they cultivated the consciousness soul, which can be illuminated by the spirit self. Such sons of man did indeed exist, and the Christ's disciples had to comprehend the nature of these leaders of humanity. To ascertain their thoughts on this subject, Christ Jesus first said to his closest disciples, quote, Name some of the beings that people call the sons of man of this line of descent. This is the approximate meaning of his question in the Aramaic original of Matthew. As I noted earlier, even the Greek translation is somewhat unclear, though it is better than any available today. Or, excuse me, end of parenthesis. We must imagine Christ standing before his disciples asking them to name the members of earlier Hebrew generations in the Greco-Roman period who were considered sons of man. And they mentioned Elijah, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, and other prophets. Through the instructive force received through the Christ, the disciples knew that those leaders had received forces that allowed them to grow to the level of embodying the Son of Man. On the same occasion, the disciple who was usually called Peter said, quote, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Unquote, Matthew 16.16 16. We cannot understand Peter's statement unless Christ's mission as described in Matthew is deeply inscribed in our souls. In recent days we learned that the Christ impulse made it possible for human beings to develop full I-consciousness, which is the full flowering of the inherent potential of the I am. In other words, future human beings will have to be able to undergo initiation into higher worlds while fully self-aware, which is possible only on the physical plane for ordinary people today. The presence of the Christ in the physical world made this change possible. Hence he represents the force that gives humankind full consciousness of the I am. I have often stressed that when free-thinking or anti-evangelical schools of thought interpret the Gospels, they fail to emphasize the most important issue. They always point out that certain phrases in the Gospels originated in an earlier time. For example, the Beatitudes appeared elsewhere at an earlier date. Our interpretation, however, rests on an element that does not predate the Gospels, namely the ability to achieve initiation while maintaining full I-consciousness. It is extremely important to know that this possibility arose for human beings only through the Christ impulse. When we discussed the individual Beatitudes, I said that the first sentence must read, quote, Blessed are those who beg for spirit, unquote, because in human evolution the quote, poor in spirit unquote, are those who have lost clairvoyant perception of the spiritual world. For them the Christ provides comfort and enlightenment. Although they can no longer perceive the spiritual world with the organs of ancient clairvoyance, they can now do so with their own I-being, for, quote, through themselves they will find the kingdoms of the heavens, unquote, Matthew 5.3. The same is true of the second sentence, quote, Blessed are those who mourn, unquote, Matthew 5.4. They no longer need to rise to spiritual spheres through ancient clairvoyance, but can do so by developing the individual I. To make this possible, however, the I must increasingly receive the force that has been incorporated into earthly existence through the unique incarnation of the Christ. Modern interpreters of the Gospel really should consider one very important Greek phrase that recurs in each of the Beatitudes. I'll try it in, in Greek. Hoti auton he basalia ton 
oranon, the sentence that begins, quote, blessed are the poor in spirit, unquote, actually continues, quote, for in themselves or through themselves they will attain the kingdoms of the heavens, unquote. The phrase, in themselves, is emphasized in every sentence. Please forgive me for mentioning something of great importance in connection with such a trivial use, trivial use of the term, but today we must begin to apply the word auton, a root of our word automobile, to independent spiritual activity, and not just to machines in the most superficial sense. Let this be a warning to our time. We certainly love machines that function automatically or, quote, out of themselves, unquote, but we must also acknowledge independent human activity with regard to initiation which occurred outside normal human eye consciousness in all the mysteries prior to the Christ event. We must eventually become independent, creative instigators of the initiation process. As modern human beings, we will come to understand this when we imbue ourselves with the Christ impulse. Seeing the issue in this light, we know that the Christ's question to his disciples had a very specific meaning. First he asked, quote, Of the leaders of this people, which could be called sons of man, and the disciples... Oh, wait, let me read that again. Quote, Of the leaders of this people, which could be called sons of man? Unquote. And the disciples listed certain names. Then he asked a different question. Wanting them to gradually understand his nature and significance for the human eye, he asked a second question. Quote, and what do you think I am? Unquote. Each time they appear in Matthew, the words I am must be especially emphasized. The gist of Peter's answer was that the Christ had to be described not merely as a son of man, but as the son of the living God. Here the standard translation is satisfactory. What is the son of the living God in contrast to a son of man? To understand this term we must add to the facts we mentioned earlier. We said that human beings develop upward by unfolding the consciousness soul in which the spirit self can appear. This upward evolution of the human being can be represented graphically like the upward development of a plant. Once the consciousness soul has been developed, the spirit self, life spirit and spirit body must come to meet it. Once the consciousness soul has been developed, the spirit self, life spirit, and spirit body must come to meet it. In the consciousness soul, human nature opens outward and is approached by the spirit self, manas, life spirit, buddhi, and spirit body, atma. These three members are like spiritual fructification from above. In our other members, we develop from below upward, blossoming into the Son of Man. As we progress further and are ready to receive full eye consciousness, the bearer of the spirit self, life spirit and spirit body must approach from above. And who represents those members that will come in the distant future of the human race? The first of these gifts is the spirit self, the offspring of the, quote, God who lives, unquote, or life spirit, the son of the living God. Christ Jesus was really asking, quote, what must my... What must my stimulus bring to human beings? Unquote. The answer is the enlivening spiritual principle from above. We must distinguish between the Son of Man who grows up from below and the Son of the Living God who grows down from above. We must understand that the second question was more difficult for the disciples. 
To imagine just how difficult it was, keep in mind that they were receiving this knowledge for the first time, through the Christ's living, instructive forces, whereas the Gospels later planted that same knowledge in the simplest people. The forces that the disciples had already developed did not prepare them to, pres- re- to understand the response to the question, quote, What do I myself represent? Unquote. Matthew tells us that the disciple named Peter asked, answered, quote, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Unquote. Matthew 16, 16. Peter's answer pointed to the distant future and therefore could not have come from his normal spiritual forces. Perhaps we can imagine what the Christ was thinking as he looked at Peter and at Peter's consciousness, his intellect and the forces he had attained through initiation. Christ knew that the answer did not come from Peter's conscious knowledge. More profound forces spoke through Peter, forces that lie dormant in human beings, waiting to become conscious. We carry within ourselves the physical, etheric, and astral bodies and I. My introductions to anthroposophy describe how we find our way to the spirit self, life spirit and spirit body, by transforming the forces of our astral, etheric and physical bodies respectively. The forces that we will eventually develop into spirit self are already present in our astral body, but not because we developed them ourselves. Divine spiritual powers placed them there. Similarly, a divine spiritual life spirit is present in our etheric body. Thus the Christ said, as he looked at Peter, quote, These words come not from your present state of consciousness, but from something you will develop in the future. It is inherent in you, but you are unaware of it. What is already, what is, already is present in your flesh and blood could not say, let me, let me read that again, what is already present in your flesh and blood could not say, quote, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, unquote. Divine spiritual forces far below the threshold of consciousness spoke these words. Indeed, these are the most profound forces in the human being. Full end quote. Christ referred to the mysterious higher forces that spoke through Peter as quote, the Father in the heavens, unquote, though he remained unaware of them. They are the forces that gave birth to Peter. Hence, Christ's words, quote, You received these words not from what you are as a human being of flesh and blood, but from the Father in the heavens, unquote, Matthew 16:17. At this point, however, Christ also had to say something else. He realized that the subconscious father force in Peter was strong enough to build on, strong enough to resist destruction by the developed forces of consciousness or by intellectual or spiritual activity. This quality is present in everyone, but will not become conscious until some time in the future. As humankind evolves, the development of Christ's gift and impulse must be based on the force that spoke through Peter when he said, quote, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Unquote. The Father force that spoke through Peter is a rock that cannot be destroyed by the crashing waves of developing consciousness, a rock that will serve as the foundation for the Christ impulse as it continues to emerge. This is the true meaning of the Christ's words in Matthew 16:18, "You are Peter, and on this rock I will build a community of those who profess the Christ impulse." Unquote. These words, which have caused heated, almost worldwide debate, must not be taken lightly as they usually are. To understand them, we must draw on the depths of mystery wisdom. Next, the Gospel clearly demonstrates that Christ Jesus is indeed building on the deep subconscious force in Peter, 
Immediately after Peter's answer, the Christ begins to speak of an event in the near future, the mystery of Golgotha. The moment has passed when deeper forces speak through Peter. His consciousness begins to speak again, and he cannot fathom the Christ's meaning. He refuses to accept that suffering and death must follow. As Peter speaks with the consciousness forces he has developed, Christ corrects him, saying, quote, What is speaking now is no God, but the human forces you have developed. They are unsuited to growing upward. They stem from a doctrine of deception from Aramon, from Aramon, the Satan. Unquote. This is the meaning of the words, quote, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not on the side of God, but of human beings. Unquote. Matthew 16.23 Note that Christ calls Peter a Satan, the word he uses for Aramon, instead of Diabolos, the term used in the Bible for the Luciferic principle. Christ uses the appropriate term for the illusion persisting in Peter. This is the truth of the matter. But popular biblical criticism today finds it impossible that the Christ would call Simon Peter a Satan just moments after telling him that only he could understand that a God was standing before him. These critics conclude that the word Satan is a forgery inserted at a later date. But opinions about the deeper meaning of Christ's words are worthless, even if they are based on philological research, if they are not also based on a factual understanding of the Scriptures. Only those who understand the facts that the Gospels present are entitled to comment on how these documents came about. Another pronouncement by Christ falls between his other two statements to Peter, and we cannot understand it unless we recall an ancient yet eternally new teaching of the mysteries, that earthly human beings, both groups and individuals, reflect events in the greater cosmos. We described an example of this when we discussed the genealogy of Jesus of Nazareth. The true meaning of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 22.17 is that Abraham's descendants would reflect the order of heavenly stars. The arrangement of the twelve constellations of the zodiac in relation to the planet's paths were to be repeated on earth in the twelve tribes of Israel and in the experience of the Hebrew people through three times fourteen generations. Abraham was promised that cosmic relationships would be reflected in the succession of generations and in the unique hereditary endowment that would develop through blood kinships among the twelve tribes. When it became clear that Peter's deeper nature understood the significance of the Christ impulse, that spiritual power would descend through the Son of the living God, Christ Jesus knew that it was time to tell those around him that a new order was emerging on earth. For Abraham, blood kinships had reflected cosmic circumstances, but now ethical, moral, and spiritual relationships would show what individuals can become through the eye. When we understand as Peter's higher nature understood, the nature and significance of the Christ, we can begin to develop communities and social structures that are based not on blood relationships, but on conscious bonds of love that link soul to soul. Just as the threads running through generations in the blood of the Jewish people intersected and separated according to macrocosmic patterns, so too the ethical, moral, and spiritual relationships that separate or unite us must now be shaped and harmonized by the conscious I-being. This is implicit in the words Christ Jesus spoke right after his first response to Peter, quote, Whatever you bind on earth, whatever your deeper nature binds, shall also be bound in heaven. 
and whatever you loose on earth shall also be loosed in heaven. Unquote. Matthew 16:19. In ancient times, the only human connections were blood kinships. As human evolution progresses, however, we must base our associations increasingly on intellectual, moral, and spiritual commonalities. The communities we establish must play a special role in our lives. In terms of spiritual science, as you know from my lectures in recent years, the karma of individuals must unite with the karma of their communities. Giving to the poor does not conflict with the idea of karma. Similarly, the principle of karma is not contradicted when a community takes on a person's karma. Individual karmas can be interconnected to such an extent that a community can help one of its members carry the burdens of individual destiny. <clears throat> Suppose that one member of a community does something wrong. The offense will certainly be inscribed in the karma of that individual and must be worked out in the greater context of the cosmos. It is still possible, however, for others to willingly help carry the wrongdoer's karma. Karma must be fulfilled, but this can happen with the help of others or of whole communities. The karma of an individual may be so embedded in a community that he or she is absolved of wrongdoing through membership in that community. The entire community sympathizes and helps to right the wrong perpetrated by that person. In effect, the community says, Quote, as an individual you have done wrong, but we will step in for you. We will take responsibility for what needs to be done to correct your karma. Unquote. If this community happens to be the church, the church assumes responsibility for the sins of the individual and helps carry his or her karma. This has nothing to do with so-called forgiveness of sins. It is a true connection. The community actually assumes the sins of that individual and must do so consciously. If we understand quote-unquote binding and quote-unquote loosing in this way, we, are also under, we must also understand any forgiveness of sins in terms of community responsibility. When we weave the threads of individual karma into the karma of an entire community, we create a net. As a result of what Christ brought to us from spiritual heights, this net is intended to reflect the structure of the heavens. In other words, the union of individual karma with the karma of the whole must not be arbitrary, but must reflect the heavenly order. Thus Peter's confession of faith acquires an infinitely profound meaning for those who begin to understand it. In this scene, a new humanity based on the nature of the I is instituted. In confidential conversations with his closest students, Christ transmits macrocosmic forces to the new humanity that the disciples must be. Let me read that again. In confidential conversations with his closest students, Christ transmits macrocosmic forces to the new humanity that the disciples must establish. From that point on, Matthew describes how the disciples are guided step by step toward the cosmic solar force focused in the Christ being and conveyed to the disciples. As we know, one aspect of initiation involves expanding into the macrocosm. Because the Christ supplies the impulse for this type of initiation, the guidance he provides to his disciples leads them into the cosmos, 
A candidate for initiation expands consciously into the macrocosm, becoming familiar with it step by step. Similarly, the Christ moves through the cosmos, revealing its forces and transmitting them to the disciples. Yesterday, I indicated the nature of that transfer of forces. When a person falls asleep, the physical and etheric bodies remain in bed as the astral body and I pour out into the cosmos to become imbued with its forces. When the Christ approaches individuals in this condition, he consciously contracts and illumines these forces. This is what happened in the scene Matthew describes. During the last watch of the night, the disciples realize that the being they at first took for a ghost is the Christ, who allows the forces of the macrocosm to flow into them. In Matthew 14, 25 and 26, and subsequent passages, we are given vivid descriptions of how Christ guided his disciples to the forces of the macrocosm along the paths followed by candidates for initiation. It is as if Christ were going through that process himself, taking his disciples by the hand to guide them where, as candidates for initiation, they need to go. Let me try to develop an image that will help clarify Christ's activity. Those who achieve clairvoyance and its vivid views of the spiritual world learn many things they could not otherwise know, such as the true relationships among a plant's stages of growth. When we see a plant flowering, we know that a seed will develop. If we take the seed and bury it in the earth, it rots and a new plant emerges, which in turn bears seeds and so on. According to the materialistic view of this cycle, a certain amount of material substance, no longer, no matter how small, passes from the seed to the new plant. But this is not what actually happens. In reality, all the matter in the old plant is destroyed. There is a material gap between the old plant and the new. The new plant is a new development and a completely new material entity. Such gaps always occur in material cycles. If understood correctly and applied to the entire cosmos, this strange-sounding principle teaches us about the most important cosmic relationships. In the mysteries, this law was formulated in a very specific way. At a certain stage of expansion into the cosmos, candidates for initiation learned about the forces that cause such gaps. As we know, the constellations represent the directions we take as we expand into the cosmos. When we move out into the cosmos in a particular direction, toward one specific constellation, we experience the gap that exists between any being and its offspring whether a plant, an animal, a human being, or even a planetary stage. This is because all matter was lost during the transition, for example, from Saturn to Sun, Sun to Moon, or Moon to Earth. The spiritual element persisted, but everything material disintegrated, and spirit always bridges the gap. This is true on the smallest scale as well as the largest. Two symbols, an older, more pictorial sign and a newer one, have been used to represent this gap between successive stages. The newer symbol can be found in certain calendars. It shows how an old stage of evolution becomes convoluted, like a spiral, and the next stage emerges from it like a second outward-moving spiral. The new stage of evolution, however, is not directly connected to the old. There is a slight gap between the end of the old and the beginning of the new element, 
and evolution moves on only after the gap. The resulting figure consists of two intertwined spirals with a slight gap in the middle. This is the symbol for the constellation of Cancer, which represents both the process of expanding into the macrocosm and the emergence of any new impulse in evolution. The language of the stars correctly compares this process to the physical sun passing through Cancer, where it reaches its highest point before descending. This cosmic event is reflected in the ascent of initiates into the spiritual world, where they become familiar with forces that must be brought back to earth to serve humankind. Strange as it may seem, the second image used to depict the transition from one stage to the next was that of a donkey and its foal. Ancient illustrations often show the constellation of Cancer as a donkey and its foal. Matthew 21, 1-11 and certain passages in the other Gospels tell how Christ modeled this event for the disciples. Instead of merely using words to explain his progression toward the zenith that human development will ultimately attain, he presents the disciples with the living image of the donkey and its foal. He guides the disciples toward an understanding of the spiritual activity corresponding to the constellation of Cancer. This image expresses what happened in the living spiritual relationship between the Christ and his disciples, an event of such majesty that it cannot be expressed in any human language. Christ introduced the disciples to macrocosmic relationships by enacting physical images of the spiritual world. He led them to the point where an initiate's forces can be used for humankind, a zenith like that of the sun passing the constellation of Cancer. Thus it is not surprising that in Matthew the high point of the Christ's earthly life is acclaimed with the resounding, quote, Hosanna in the highest, unquote. The growth and maturation that these sounds triggered in the disciples prefigure the growth and maturation of the Christ impulse in humankind as a whole. The Passover story recounted next in Matthew describes nothing less than the influx of insights first conveyed to the disciples in the form of teachings. Later, however, they flowed magically into humankind through forces unleashed by the mystery of Golgotha. If we keep in mind this interpretation of the remainder of Matthew, we will realize that the evangelist was always aware of the need to contrast living teachings from cosmic heights with the experience of outsiders unreceptive to the forces of the Christ. This contrast confronts us in the Christ's conversations with the scribes and Pharisees, which we will consider tomorrow. Today, however, I still want to mention that after bringing his disciples as far as he could along the path of initiation, Christ Jesus also promised them that following this path would lead them to experiences of expanding into the spiritual macrocosmic world. He assured them of their potential for initiation, saying that they would soon experience the macrocosmic world. There they would increasingly recognize the being whose image appeared in the personality of Jesus of Nazareth as the being who fills all of spiritual space. Christ had to tell his pupils that they were maturing toward initiation on behalf of humankind. He made them aware that independent initiation can be achieved only through patient perseverance in allowing one's inner nature to mature. 
As we strengthen our inner life and develop higher clairvoyant forces, our individual potential inevitably matures until we can receive the forces of the spirit self, life spirit and spirit body. Only the highest initiates, however, can know the exact moment of illumination from above, the moment that one is transformed into an initiate, a participant in the heavenly kingdoms. That moment depends entirely on individual maturity and karma. Those at the lower stages of initiation cannot know when to expect it. We can be certain that once we are mature enough to enter the spiritual world, that moment will indeed come, but it will come when we least expect it, quote, like a thief in the night, unquote. Matthew 24, 43. But how do individuals grow into the spiritual world? The ancient mysteries, and in some respects newer mysteries as well, recognized three levels of macrocosmic initiation. During the first stage, candidates learned to perceive everything possible through the spirit self. In addition to becoming human in a new sense, they also rise to the level of the angels, the first hierarchy above the human level. In the Persian mysteries, those who achieved this stage of initiation into the macrocosm were called Persians because they were no longer merely individuals but belonged to the angel of the Persian people. Other mysteries spoke directly of such people as angels or godly natures. At the next level, the life spirit awakens in a similar way. In the Persian mysteries, individuals who achieved this level were called sun heroes because further development enabled them to receive the power of the sun, S-U-N, coming to earth. Initiates at this stage are also called sons of the father. In the ancient mysteries, those who achieved the level of atma, or spirit body, were called fathers. These names designated the three stages of initiation. Only the highest initiates can judge when individual initiation will occur. Hence the Christ said that although initiation will certainly come to those who follow the paths he laid out, the hour of an individual's ascent into the kingdoms of the heavens is known neither to the angels who have been initiated into the spirit self nor to the Son, S-O-N, who is initiated into the life spirit, but only to the fathers, the highest of initiates. Here, too, the words of Matthew agree completely with the mystery traditions. As we will see, the Christ's proclamation of the kingdoms of the heavens is simply a prediction that the disciples will experience initiation. In Matthew 24:24, the Christ expresses this meaning emphatically. When we interpret this passage correctly, it is obvious that the Christ is referring to specific prevalent teachings of his time that refer to attaining the heavenly kingdoms. In a materialistic sense, however, people believed that the entire earth would ascend into the heavens, whereas they should have known that only individual initiates achieve this ascent. <clears throat> In other words, some people believed that the earth would soon be materially transformed into heaven. The Christ points specifically to this false belief when he predicts that impostors will appear, claiming to be messiahs and prophets. Matthew 24, 24. It is very strange that some gospel interpreters still promote the fiction that Christ Jesus himself taught that a physical kingdom of God would come about. But anyone who interprets Matthew correctly knows that Christ Jesus was speaking of a spiritual process. 
Individual initiates are already able to attain this goal, and all humankind, or all those who follow the Christ, will also learn to attain it as the earth becomes spiritualized. We gain a tremendous respect for the gospel, according to Matthew, when we consider its entire structure in greater detail from this perspective. More so than any other gospel, Matthew allows us to listen in as the Christ Jesus instructs his pupils from the perspective of the eye. We see them standing around him. We see how the forces of the cosmos work through his human body. We see how he takes his disciples by the hand and guides them, teaching them everything that candidates for initiation must learn. We hear about the human relationships that developed around the Christ Jesus. As a result, Matthew seems very human and very close to us. Through this gospel we meet Jesus of Nazareth, the vehicle of the Christ as a human being. We learn about everything that the Christ accomplished by descending into human nature. In the facts presented in Matthew, even heavenly processes are cloaked in human circumstances. In the next lecture, the last in this series, we will discuss the impact of the human face of Matthew's Gospel on those who are not initiates. End of Lecture 11, given in Bern on September 11, 1910.